We're going to jump into the Word of God now. We're looking today at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Amen. 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 Romans chapter 8. James Montgomery Boris, the great preacher from 10th Presbyterian Church here in Philadelphia for many years, who wrote this huge set of books on Romans chapter 8, called it the greatest chapter of the Bible. Now, the Bible's full of great chapters, it's full of great verses, but Romans 8 is a particularly powerful, as you'll hopefully see a part of this today, uh, a presentation of the work of God in the life of believers. So without further ado, let's stand up as we get ready to read God's Word. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the amazing truth of your word and the power of your spirit. We pray that in these next few moments, Lord God, that you might quicken our minds, soften our hearts, and speak to each life here the message that we need to hear. And Lord, this can only happen by the work of your Holy Spirit. So be with us now in the coming moments that the name of Jesus might be glorified in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8. You know, pastor usually goes through books, um, chapter by chapter. Y'all know, verse by verse, sometimes word by word. Amen. 
So we go through very carefully and we do that because we want to be able to say like the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians church, we preach to you the whole counsel of God. We just don't come with our favorite little doctrine here and there. But um, when the rest of us get up to preach sometimes we're not in a, in, in a series so we've got to present something like one time coming from a particular book. And so it's a challenge walking right into the middle of the book of Romans this morning and, and coming to chapter 8 without having done some groundwork on chapters 1 through 7. So if we could just take a few minutes to do that, is that okay? Let's do that. So the book of Romans, Paul is excited about and hopeful about actually going to Rome where God has already established a church, a church of Jews and Gentiles alike. And Paul writes this epistle to the Romans uh, before he ever goes there because he wants them to explicitly understand the gospel that he preaches and to set things in order doctrinally for that church and also to, to, to talk about how that works out in their lives daily as believers. And so the epistle of Romans is probably the one place above any other in the New Testament where doctrine is laid out precept upon precept upon precept and the gospel is clearly portrayed in this great book. So much so that the Lord has used this book through the ages in the lives of many believers. Martin Luther in looking at the gospel of grace presented in the book of Romans came to Christ out of his slavish idolatry and, and, and out of the legalism that he found himself in. He came to Christ when he saw the truths of grace espoused. John Wesley as well came to Christ a, a, a true and real and life-changing encounter with the living Christ through the book of Romans. And so it has been for many people throughout the ages. And so this book lays out the doctrine of the righteousness of God. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us our need for righteousness. In chapter 1, you'll see, quoting the Old Testament, that there's none good. No, not one. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're not good. You're dead in sin and you need what only Christ can bring to you. And so towards the end of the third chapter in verse 23, he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I think that's actually in chapter 6. But in chapter 3, he, he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in those first three chapters, he talks about the need for righteousness. The need for righteousness. You need this righteousness because you can't stand before a holy and perfect God without it. You will be destroyed, dismayed. And so in chapters 4 and 5, Paul then lays out the idea of imputed righteousness. You need this righteousness. How can I get it? And he says in chapters 4 and 5, there's only one way you can get it. And you can't get it by running harder, jumping higher, doing more good things and staying away from evil. That's not going to get you what you need. He says you need perfect righteousness. You need the imputed righteousness, the poured into you righteousness that belongs to one and only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that's your only hope. 
That's all that you've got unless you receive this righteousness. And there's only one way to receive it, and that is by believing in Jesus Christ. So this righteousness is a gift to you by faith in Christ through the grace of God in the person of Jesus. And he says that is indeed how you can receive this righteousness. And he says in chapter in chapter. Uh, Six, let's see, no, in chapter five, I'm sorry, starting at ver verse 18, he says, therefore as one, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. He goes on to say in verse 20, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased. Grace abounded all the more. And so, as he's told us our need for righteousness, and the only way we can receive it, imputed through Jesus Christ, he brings us to chapters 6 through 8, which are going to answer the questions that come about because of what he has thus far laid out in his gospel. And there's two main questions Chapter 6 deals with the first main question. It's at the beginning of that chapter. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You just said, Paul, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So, therefore, logically, shouldn't we, if we want grace to abound, shouldn't we sin some more? It's a logical question. Paul says, you dummy, but he says it in Greek, so it's, it's, it's translated differently. <laughs> he says, how foolish, may it never be. That can't be true. Don't you understand that if you died with Christ on the cross, if you have been, if you have been united with him in his death, so you are in his life, how can you who have died to sin live anymore in it? It doesn't make sense. So he says, Later in the chapter, so reckon yourselves, count yourselves righteous, and, and, not, and not continue to live in sin. And he says towards the end of that chapter, he says, don't you know that you are slaves to the one that you obey? Either slaves of sin, if you obey sin, or slaves of righteousness, if you obey God himself. So... The first question is answered with a resounding no. Shall we continue in sin? Of course not, you dummies. You can't continue in sin. You're a new person in Christ. But then the second question comes, which he begins to answer in chapter 7. That question's a little more difficult to answer because he's speaking to both a Jewish and Gentile audience. And the Jews have been reared in the law of Moses and greatly revere the law as they should, as we should. So that question is, Paul, isn't the law good? And if so, therefore, isn't that our way to righteousness? So Paul begins verse seven, or chapter 7. I want to read a few verses to lay out his argument, and then we'll jump into chapter 8. At the beginning of verse 7, Paul says this. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. What in the world does this have to do with what we're talking about? Paul is laying out an argument here. Terry Virgo lays it out wonderfully in his book, God's Lavish Grace. And he's saying that, do you understand, you were married to the law. The law was your way. The law brought you to Christ. You were married to the law. Now, the law is a different kind of a husband. Because the law is always perfect and always right. Ladies, do you have that kind of husband? Probably not. The law as a husband never, ever once gets it wrong. The law is always correct. Now, not only is the law always right, but the law as a husband always points out everything you ever did wrong. Every deviation from perfection is pointed out time after time. Whenever you mess up, in any way, the law, your husband, is right there to say, you messed up again. You blew it again. What a husband. Now, here's the other thing. With the law, the law is that husband who's always right and who points out every wrong thing you ever did, but the law as a husband is totally impotent to help you. The law offers no help whatsoever. It lays the burden upon you, but gives you no help with that burden. But Paul seems to talk about something here in these verses that offers us great hope because in verse 3 he says, but if the husband dies, you can take another husband. But then if we think about this, that's bad news because the law of God is perfect. The law of God is not going anywhere. It's not going to change, right? The law of God reveals the perfect character of the perfect God. The law does not change. The law is not going to die. You are stuck with this perfect but impotent and unhelpful husband for the rest of your life, or so it would seem. Verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. He says the law won't die, but you died to the law. When Christ died and you were in Christ, you died in Christ, you died to the law. 
And so there's a new principle under which you will now live. So as he expounds in the rest of Romans chapter 7, and he begins to talk about the plight of someone trying to better their life, trying to be transformed, trying to walk out the newness of life that he talked about in chapter 6. And he begins to say in the middle of chapter 7, the very thing I want to do, I can't do. The thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh my gosh, what's going on with me? This is the man who thinks that the law is the answer. And you'll see in the context of all of that, there's not one mention of the Holy Spirit. There's not one mention of being in Christ. But you simply have a man who is trying to get better without the Holy Spirit of God animating his life. And so he comes to the end of that chapter. And in the final verse, he says these words. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So chapter 8 is now going to finally answer the question, how then this imputed righteousness given to me by Jesus Christ, how does this work itself out in my life? How do I do this stuff? So let's look again at our text in chapter 8. He begins with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation. Say that, no condemnation. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. It's done. It's finished. It's done away with. It's over. He said, that is important for us to get in our minds, to get in our hearts, to get in our lives, because many of you live under a cloud of guilt and, common, and condemnation day after day, sometimes week after week, month after month, year after year, but God says there is now none, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. It's passed away. He was condemned on your behalf so that you don't have to be. As a matter of fact, if you're in him, you cannot be ever. He's going to say later on in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Condemnation is past for the believer. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. he says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We're judged at times. We are disciplined. We have a father who loves us. And if you're running around like a bratty little boy or girl... God loves you enough to give you a holy whooping. Amen? Amen? He loves you that much to bring you back to himself. But that is not condemnation. So what does that mean for the believer? It means this, at least in part, that guilt-centered Christianity needs to be over. It needs to be done. Extended guilt, long-term guilt that substitutes for genuine repentance is a denial of the gospel. 
It's putting your trust in something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. So when you think, I'm just going to feel guilty all the time, and that, that's my duty as a believer, you don't get the gospel. He paid it all on your behalf. There's no condemnation anymore. And so he begins to talk here in, in these verses about the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that sets you free from the law of sin and death. In the New Living Translation, instead of using the, the, the term the law of sin and death, it says the power of sin and death. And that word in the Greek that nomos, which we translate usually law, can mean a realm of power. And so he says, the, the powerful law of sin and death, that power that had you bound, is no longer operative. So Paul, or, or Jesus actually says in Mark chapter 3, he is confronted with Pharisees because he's casting out devils. And they say, I know how he's doing it. He's casting out devils by the chief of devils. By Beelzebub. Jesus says, are you nuts? How can Satan war against Satan? A house divided against itself can't stand. That doesn't make any sense. But then he says, in verse 27 of Mark chapter 3, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. That's what he begins to say. Now, I know I saw Stephen Brindle. He's right there. Stephen Brindle, man, he's diesel, yo. I was talking to him last week, and I was telling him about my exploits on the bench press. And he, he's very kind. He's like, oh, that's great. That's great. Wow, you lifted that two times. That's really good. But brother man is thick. He's strong, right? He, he, he can, he, he can uh, what do you call it, squat, right? Over 500 pounds. That's when you put 500 pounds on your shoulders. Now, I can put 500 pounds on my shoulders, but then I won't have any shoulders. That's the problem. But, but that, that is you, go, you have 500 plus pounds, and you go down, and you go up, and you go down, and you go up. I could go down. I could not go up. Jesus says... If you go into the strong man's house, I'm not going to go into Stephen's place and say, yo, man, I want that TV. Bam. I want some of that. Bam. I'm, that's not going to work. Not going to work. Um, unless the strong man is bound up. I'm not going to do this to you, brother. We're not going to duct tape you in the middle of the night. That's not going to happen. But unless the strong man is bound up, you can't plunder his house. So what is, what is Paul saying here in Romans 8? He says, the strong man of the power and the law of sin and death has been bound up by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, this strong man, this law that was killing you, that was driving you, that was condemning you, is now totally bound up and can't do a thing to you anymore ever again. Ever again. It has no more power. The stronger man has come. And that is the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So he goes on here. Look at verse 4, interesting verse, he says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
He says righteous requirement of the law. He does not use the plural. He would normally, you would expect to see a plural, the righteous requirements of the law. We can look at the law, 613 laws in the Old Testament. That's more than just the Ten Commandments, y'all. 613 laws, every one of them you got to do. He doesn't say the righteous requirements of the law. He says the righteous requirement, singular, one thing. The righteous requirement is that you fulfill and you do each and every piece of the law perfectly and without fail. And he says the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. We could translate that in a different way and say that the righteous requirements or requirement of the law might be completely fulfilled in and for us. The, the, the verb there that's translated fulfilled in us is in the passive tense. So in other words, it's not that you are fulfilling it or you're working to make sure it happens. But what it means is you are passively receiving the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled on your behalf. You're not doing anything. You're receiving what has already been done. And you do that passively. You, you receive the, the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law by God's grace. Now, as we do that, look what it says then in the remainder of that verse. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what is God teaching us there? He's teaching us this idea that our passive acceptance of Christ's righteousness leads us to an active, ongoing obedience in our lives. You see, when, when, when you understand that he has set you free from the law of sin and death, from condemnation, and he's fulfilled everything that needs to be done. That word fulfilled means to fill up to the very brim. So you put so much water in the glass that if you put one more drop, it would have to spill. He said he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. It's all done. There's nothing more that can be done for it. It's fulfilled for you. And when, and the Bible says when we get a hold of that, then we walk this thing out in Jesus' name. So we become those who walk out what it is to live under the guidance and under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We walk out this, this type of life. So we are free, it says in these first four verses, free by the Holy Spirit, we're free from sin's penalty. Then in verses 5 through 8, we're going to see that we're not only free from sin's penalty, but from sin-centered thinking. Let me read those verses to you, begin to read them to you from the New Living Translation. It says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. 
But letting the Spirit control your minds leads to life and peace. What the Scripture is doing here is it's laying out for us two antithetical ways of thinking. One way is of the flesh or of the sinful nature. The other way is of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not our own spirit, but the Holy Spirit. So two separate and distinct ways, two mindsets. The word that's used there is a word that means to employ the faculty of thoughtful planning with an emphasis upon the underlying disposition or attitude. Or as you would say in Philadelphia, attitude. So it's the same word that's used in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 where it says, let this mindset be in you that's also in Christ Jesus. Now he uses this both in the positive and in the negative. So there is a mindset, there is an attitude, there is a disposition that is according to the flesh or the sinful nature. And there is a mindset, an attitude, and a disposition that is according to the Holy Spirit of God. And he says, these are in complete and utter opposition to one another. One of them, as a matter of fact, leads to death. The other leads to life. He goes on to say... In verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The word there is enmity in other translations. It really means to be at war with. So the one mindset, the mindset bent on the flesh, the sin nature, is at enmity, at war with God himself. That is the mindset. The other mindset is 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 involved with and running towards the things of God and the will of God. So we've got to be careful when we think about these two mindsets because too often we simplify this in a way that's not scriptural at all because we come up with our top ten list of really bad sins. Which mine aren't on, by the way. My sins. Yours are, but mine aren't. We come up with a list that says, that's bad, that's sinful nature, that's things of the flesh. That's bad. So, so it may be an atheist. Oh, they don't believe in God at all. They hate God. They don't believe in God. But now here we have a spiritual person who says, I love God. I live for God. I walk with God. I'm a God guy. This Jesus stuff, don't get it. This God who became man, died on a cross for my sins 2,000 years ago, not into that. But I'm a God guy. I'm very spiritual. See, it's all the mindset of the flesh, isn't it? So, so one person may be destructive, thuggish, hurting people, destroying people. Another person is Humanitarian with a capital H on their chest. Captain Humanitarian, I will help you today. Moral, helpful, 
Little old, no little old lady gets across the street without Captain Humanitarian. But Captain Humanitarian does not acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of God. He acknowledges, as a matter of fact, himself and his good deeds as being that which is worthy of standing before God. Or perhaps God standing before him. But it's a mindset where I become central and God, whoever he or she is, is somewhere out there. And so this, this becomes true in every area and element of life. It's the fact that the life according to the flesh or the mindset, the attitude of the flesh is this, that Jesus Christ is anywhere but in the middle. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, John warns the young church, test the spirits to see if they are of God. So anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is not of God. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say they are of the Antichrist. Good, moral, nice, wonderful. Some would even say godly, but you can't say that according to Scripture. Not godly. Because the center of godliness is our bowing in adoration and thanksgiving to the one who has gone before us and saved us. Jesus the Christ. So, so in other words, this form of life is now dominated by thinking God's thoughts after him. So we see the language here in verse 5. He says, live according to the Spirit. In Galatians 5, he uses the, the, the term walk by the Spirit. Later in Galatians 5, verse 18, he says, we live by the Spirit. Let us also walk by the Spirit. He talks about being led by the Spirit. And then in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, he uses this, this great analogy. He says, do not be drunk with wine. He says that is dissipation or debauchery, it says in the ESV. That word is actually is not savedness. Because the, the, the main part of that word is the same word we use for being saved. But there's a negation at the beginning of that word. So don't be drunk with wine because that's not savedness. But he says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the divine imperative on the life of every believer. I don't care what you believe about different doctrines on, on different things. We have got to come back to a robust doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You don't make it because of your effort. You don't make it because you study. You don't make it because you know Greek and Hebrew and how to parse verbs. You make it only one way because the Holy Spirit of God gets involved in your life and works with you and brings you to where God has you to be and needs you to be. And so we become dominated. This, this way of thinking in verses 5 through 8 is a way of thinking that's dominated by thinking about the things of God. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says these words, that this, this type of thinking is the thinking of the pursuit of God. And he says, this is the thing that the Christian pursues. He wants this relationship to be right both now and in eternity. Indeed, this is so true of him that everything else becomes relatively unimportant. 
I do not hesitate, he says, to put it as strongly as that. If you cannot say quite honestly that everything else becomes relatively unimportant to you in comparison to this, I do not see that you have the right to call yourself a Christian. In other words, this is the thing that establishes that we are Christians. Everything else falls into position because this now is the thing that matters centrally. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're perfect in all your ways, that you never mess up. What it means is the thing that concerns your thinking more than anything else is how can I please God? How can I walk with God? How can I, how can I live in such a way that I put a smile on the face of my heavenly Father? How can I live in such a way that God is glorified in my life? And this becomes the preoccupation of the Christian mind. Because the Christian is one who's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Not drunk with wine. I don't know about, probably no one else here has ever been drunk with wine. Or any other intoxicating substance. I will admit, I have. And I was... I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> but I was a dumb, dumb drunk. Because the thing that happened to me first is that all my inhibitions flew out the window. I know y'all can't relate, but the things I would never, ever do, the confidence to walk up to a person that otherwise I would never walk up to, and the thing I would never dare say, now I'll walk up and I'll just say it. <laughs> and, 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 but I'll say it kind of something like this. I think you have a problem. Because when we're under the influence of alcohol and we're drunk, it slurs our speech. It messes up our, our, our discernment and our thinking. And it changes the very way that we walk so that now I can't even walk a straight line. And the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul is drawing an analogy that in the same way that alcohol has now changed your mind, it's changed your speech, and it's changed your walk so should be the Holy Spirit of God at work in your life that someone who sees you as a spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, your life is now distinct. Your life is different. Your life shows the marks of Jesus all over it. And you take no credit for any of it. You say, thank you, Jesus. And when someone sees your mess and your fault and your sin, you say, yup, that, that was me. That was me, but there's no condemnation. And I've repented from that. And now I'm going to walk with Jesus some more. So we're different from the world, free from sin-centered thinking. And the last thing today as we get ready to close, freedom also from sin's power. Freedom from sin's penalty, freedom from sin-centered thinking, and lastly, freedom from sin's power now and forever. Look at verse 9. 
For you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That is a heavy, heavy statement. He is not talking in these verses about two different kinds of Christians. Christians that have the Holy Spirit and Christians that don't have the Holy Spirit. He says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. So it's not too different. It's not like, uh, I'm just this carnal Christian. Wait, maybe one day I'll get the Holy Spirit. No, he says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian in the first place. That's what the Bible says. I'm not making this stuff up, y'all. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But then he goes on to say in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, now, that, that statement helps me. He says, the body is dead because of sin. I have a 226-pound dead man that I carry around with me every day. I'm hoping by the end of the year, I'll have about a 210-pound dead man. <laughs> but right now, he's about 226. The body is dead. Your body is not saved. You wonder where the struggle is, why there's a struggle. Your body's not saved. One day it will be. That is the great hope. I don't know if anyone else saw, I think it was in the, um, uh, the, the movies about the rapture. Um, Left Behind movies. I, I think it was in those movies, but I remember seeing them some time ago. I got freaked out. I was so scared. Because the rapture happens. And the people that have been raptured, they go to where that person was, and their clothes are all, like, neatly folded up. <laughs> I'm going to be with Jesus. Up, got to fold my T-shirt. <laughs> that must be in 2 Revelations chapter 32. I don't know. But I ain't mad at nobody. But... What, what freaked me out about that is the thought of being raptured in, in this body and going up in the air to meet Jesus with no clothes on. <laughs> and I thought, like, like, that's a double judgment for the people that aren't raptured. They got, oh, God! What? I don't want to go out like that. But the scripture says we get a brand new body that is like and corresponds with the body of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He says you're getting a brand new body and the animating power that allows you to live a transformed life is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Christians, we have got to come up with a much more robust understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Gordon Fee says these words, For Paul, the Spirit was an experienced, empowering reality. Paul would not have understood most of historic Protestantism. 
He says, I know that sounds unkind, but it's true. The reason he would not have understood it is because he would not have understood a Christian life in which the experienced life of the Spirit was not the key to every dimension of life. The Holy Spirit of God is not an it. The Holy Spirit of God is not a side doctrine of Christianity. The Holy Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity, and He is our hope for transformation in this life and for bringing great glory to God. As a matter of fact, throughout all of Scripture, we see wonderful prophecy that the Holy Spirit will come. He's often spoken of in terms of water that that heals a land, that changes a land. In Isaiah chapter 58, he says these words, the Lord, verse 11, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. In Ezekiel chapter 47, he says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. In Joel 3, in verse 18, he says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Zechariah prophesies that on that day there shall be a fountain open in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Most of many of you know Psalm 1 in verse 3 talking about the righteous man. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. When Jesus left this earth to be with, the heavenly, to be with his heavenly father, he told the disciples, don't you dare go anywhere right now. Don't you start evangelizing. Don't you try to heal anybody. Don't you try to preach the gospel. Wait in Jerusalem for power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then that happens in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon this group of 120 disciples of Jesus Christ. And they begin to spread the word of Christ. Peter stands up and begins to preach a sermon. And he says these words in verse 17, in the last days, quoting the prophet Joel, he says, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Hallelujah. Good for old men. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of Christ in you. The title for the message, I didn't give the title, but is transformed by the Holy Spirit. It is only in the work of the Spirit. The law will bring you to death Over and over again, it will bring you to the end of yourself with no hope on the other side. But the Spirit brings life. The stronger man has come and he he has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
My prayer is that we, as the people of God, will begin to understand more and more that it is our need to wait on the work of the Holy Spirit and to walk in Him. One last analogy, I'm closing, is this. Often, we live the Christian life as if we're driving a car and we see red lights and green lights. The law is kind of like that. Red light, oh, got to stop. Green light, oh, I'm supposed to do this, go, hit the gas. And we're stopping and we're going and we're trying to make sure we get the lights right all the time. It's a lot of work. It's hard. But being filled with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit is less like a red light and a green light and it's more like a yield sign. Because there's a sign there and we know that sign. And we know the signs that, that, that accompany that and we can see as God un- gives us His will and His purpose in His Word by His Spirit, He gives us the ability to walk and to be led by and to yield to and to move with the flow of God through His Holy Spirit. That is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. And I pray that out of this message today, you'll understand more and more that you need to yield yourself to him. Your confidence anywhere else is misplaced. Study scripture, pray hard, get in community, do all those things. And at the end of the day, say, Lord, by your spirit, help me to walk this thing out. And he will, he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are at work in your people that you have promised to never leave us, never forsake us. You said it was better for your disciples that you would leave so that the Holy Spirit would come and live in them and animate them and give them spiritual life that they didn't know anything about beforehand. And Lord, we as your church have that amazing privilege. Lord, I pray that anyone walking under condemnation today would understand that day is over. And that, Lord, we would yield ourselves to the present work of your Holy Spirit that will always glorify the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. So, Lord, strengthen us in all these things we pray. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.